began the topic of church leadership and uh, we were not able to complete it and I hope to complete it this morning. So, we began with the headship of Christ and we saw from scripture, scripture explicitly affirms that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. We saw the meaning of headship. Headship is the governing, ruling authority. And to say Jesus is the head is to say Jesus is his Lord. Jesus is the ruler and the governing authority. And then secondly, under the headship we saw who made Jesus Christ the head of the church. And then thirdly, we saw how Jesus Christ rules his church. We saw that he rules by being the savior of the church. He supervises his church, secondly. And then thirdly, he sanctifies his church. And then fourthly, we saw that he secures his church. We saw those from the passage in Ephesians chapter 5 from verse 24. And we saw the, we began looking at the topic of the elders, the elders, the pastors, the overseers or bishops. And the passage in reference was 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, this is an important chapter because it lays out the qualifications of, of leadership. And the context, as we saw, is that many years have passed since Paul started the church in Ephesus. We know that Paul had pastored the church here for three years. He had raised up a go godly, he had raised up godly men. And this church had been used to plant other churches in Asia Minor. But Paul leaves and he goes to Rome and he's imprisoned. And by the time he returns to Ephesus, he notices that the church is on a downfall. And so he meets Timothy and he heads to Macedonia. But it isn't long before he pens this letter. It isn't long before he pens this letter to, to Timothy. And the major issue he addresses is about the qualifications for church leaders. leaders. So the standard of church leadership must be at par with what the word of God demands. So before we look at 1 Timothy 3, please turn to Acts chapter 20. I like to define the terms bishop, Acts chapter 20 verse 17 someone can read that <clears throat> Acts 20 verse 17 Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesians and called the elders of the church to come to him So he's speaking to the Ephesian elders and, and the and the word referred there is elders. And if you look at the same chapter, verse 20, 20, 28, someone can read verse 28 of chapter Acts chapter 20. Please continue. Therefore, the church God which he obtained with his own blood. Yeah, so, so we see the, the same phrases used interchangeably. Verse 17 refers to them to the Ephesian elders, and then Paul commands them in verse 28, and he refers to them as overseers. He says there, and the, the, there's an aspect of of being a shepherd, being a pastor, when he says, pay, care, pay careful attention to the flock, meaning they are shepherds of this flock. So the elder, the term elder simply means uh, spiritual maturity. It means that this person is older in spiritual dimension. When he talks of an overseer or a bishop, the word episcopos, it means the one who leads, the one who administrates and coordinates and supervises. 
so so bishop or overseer refers to his leadership responsibility and then the term shepherd or pastor refers to his feeding or caring responsibility so he's a mature spiritual person who leads and feeds the the church and so whether you call him an elder a bishop a pastor it's all the same it's simply alliterations they all refer to the same person and so the the term elder has to do with with one's character the spiritual maturity and the term um overseer speaks of his administrative skills speaks of his general care of the church the spiritual oversight in the church so it's all one and the same and what is the responsibility of the elders it is to rule first timothy chapter 5 verse 17 says they rule they they are to be ranked fast or to stand fast they have the authority given to them by christ to rule on his behalf using the word so turn to first timothy chapter 3 where we began last week first timothy chapter 3 1 Timothy chapter 3, I'll read the first, uh, the first verse. It says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So these qualifications do not talk about their duties. They're spe- specifically talking about their character. And let me just tell you, in the future, the most important consideration you'll ever make is who is selected for leadership because the standard here is very clear and when the standard is violated you you, you, you start removing the fence and people start going off the edge the standard here is very high but it comes short of perfection we're not saying that there's perfection here what you're saying is the Lord has ordained a standard for spiritual leaders and as much as is possible by God's grace and by the power of the Spirit those who lead in the church are to meet this standard and and so it begins by saying the saying is trustworthy to mean that what is to follow is of great importance the phrase means that this is this is the truth everybody knows it it does not need any proof it is it is an obvious believable statement it says if anyone has passed the office of overseer he deserves a noble task first of all it talks of the desire it talks of this is a compulsion a compulsion to serve the lord and we saw last week that it is the work of the holy spirit and then secondly we saw that this call is limited it is limited to men and it's not all men the limitations of this call are even reinforced from verse 2 to 6 as it uses a masculine form he says he he as as we continue to see and and in fact it is impossible for a woman to be a one woman man he says the husband of one wife it's impossible for a woman to be that so the church listens to this person feeling the compulsion the church examined their life by the standards of verses 2 to 7. And so if this man desires that, we see here that he, he desires a noble task. But it is not the church immediately accepting this person just because they aspire. And so beginning in verse 2, we begin to see the list of qualifications to affirm such an aspiring man. If one thing, it's one thing to seek this, it's something else to be qualified to receive it. And so here we move from the man with the desire to the church with the responsibility. 
And so, as much as a man is to desire this, the church is to qualify that man and to affirm his qualifications. So this is the church's responsibility to set aside men qualified for ministry. And so verse 2 says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. The term there, therefore, indicates that because of verse 1, because this call is very sacred and lofty and noble, because of that, this person then must be blameless, must be beyond reproach. So we saw that blamelessness, the beyond reproach, is, is the overarching requirement for this person desiring ministry. He must be in a present state of blamelessness. It doesn't mean that he never committed a sin in his whole life or that there wasn't something wrong with him in his past life. What it means is that in the present state, he is blameless. He is irreproachable. You can't lay anything on him. That's the idea there. There's nothing to accuse him of. So he must be a man whose life is not marred by sin or evil habits or bad attitudes is to be beyond accusation. It is not something that everyone points to. He doesn't have a defect which is public, which everyone knows. And so in fact, everything that comes after the phrase there, beyond reproach, defines what this blamelessness is. Blamelessness in terms of his domestic life. Blamelessness in his spiritual life. In his moral life. In his pastoral life. So if he's, sin if he's sinful in any area of his life, maybe he's preoccupied with material things, he has ego problem, he is lustful, for example, he has argumentative spirit, he's indifferent, whatever the blight might be in his life, that defect allows him to demonstrate to others that, that you can live in imperfection and still be a spiritual leader. And so he's unqualified. And I'm not saying that there's a perfect pastor, because we all know that there isn't. But what I'm saying is there's, there's no single public scene in his life to which everybody points to and everybody knows. And the reason why blamelessness is called for all, past, for all at the pastoral level is because the elders are an example for others to follow. And so if blamelessness is called on the elders, it's called for every one of us. The same blamelessness. It's just that some things can be tolerated in the congregation that cannot be tolerated with spiritual leaders because they are in a position of showing example, of showing a model. And so they can say like Paul, be followers of me. That's something that every spiritual leader has to be able to say. And so spiritual leadership is a matter of example. It's a matter of setting a model. And so it's, it isn't what your leaders say. It is what they are. People will only follow what you say if it's consistent with what you are. If you're less than what you say, people will follow your lesser standard and become what you are rather than what you say. So those who, are, who lead the church are called to be blameless. They are a model of godliness, a model of virtue. Is set apart as a standard against which every life could be measured and by which every life instructed. And so what I want you to see here is Paul begins with the aspect of above reproach, the aspect of blamelessness. And this speaks to the church in Ephesus. It speaks to our church and to every church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question we ask ourselves in this text what kind of men 
are fit to lead the church? What kind of men are to be preachers and teachers? What kind of men are to be chosen as elders? So this is the matter that this text deals with. And so we'll see the four areas of blamelessness. The first area has to do with his moral character. Moral character. Secondly, second area of blamelessness has to do with his domestic life. Domestic life. And then thirdly, pastoral life. And then fourthly, has to do with his spiritual life. So the first thing with with moral character, we see there that therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, that talks about his domestic life. And then the first moral character there is sober-minded. Sober-minded. It means to be wineless. It means unmixed with wine. Because this is a vital character because of the judgments that he makes because of the model that he has to set the example he has to set this person does not participate in drinking it means that this person is alert he's watchful he's vigilant he's clear-headed he never allows himself to be intoxicated with anything so it's that inner strength that denies any excess it's not only drinking, but he should have moderation as far as his eating is concerned, as far as what he watches, as far as what he thinks. There should be moderation. It should be temperate. So there's nothing that clouds his, his mind, his vision. He has no excess. And then secondly, he says there that he's self-controlled. Has the husband of one wife sober-minded self-control this is the second aspect as regards to his moral character and self-control means that he's in control of his life he has no excess and the result of that the result of sober-mindedness is that he's self-controlled automatically if someone is sober-minded is clear in his mind He's able to control his urgings. So this is a person who is serious about spiritual things. He's a serious man. That doesn't mean that there's no place for humor. Any good leader is going to be able to use and enjoy humor. But there's a seriousness of life that commands a seriousness of his mind. It also carries the idea that he's a man with a sure and steady mind. He's not rash. He's very thoughtful. He's very honest, very cautious in judgments. He makes judgments with, with great caution. And so we see their self-control. So a man willing to serve in the church must be devoted to love one woman. He says there uh, he must be Sober-minded, self-controlled. And then thirdly, respectable. Thirdly, respectable. So when a person is clear-minded, they're able to order their priorities in their thinking in a well-disciplined way. It will result to this. It will result to them being respectable. Everyone will respect them. So this person thinks on right things. His life is orderly. You can see the discipline of his heart, the mind in the discipline of his duties and his action. You give him a responsibility and he does. This person will command respect. So third thing there is respectable. And then fourthly, um, we'll, speak we'll, we'll skip hospitable because it speaks of his dom domestic life, able to teach has to do with pastoral life and then verse 3 talks about not a drunkard not a drunkard so whether he drinks to drunkenness or not is not the issue here the issue is whether he's a, he has a reputation as a drinker you see the first thing we saw there sober mindedness means to be wineless 
it has to do with being watchful and and being clear-headed and so when he speaks of not being a drunkard he's speaking about his associations he's not a drinker he doesn't frequent bars he doesn't sit around all the noisy scenes associated with drinking and make those his habitat he doesn't find his place in the bar so that's the issue here he's not a drinker and so anybody in spiritual leadership stays away from anything that that blurs their vision and then fifthly as far as moral uh, conduct is concerned it says there verse, verse 3 not a drunkard not violent but gentle You're not a pastor if the way you handle things is with your fist or with instruments of violence. He's <clears throat> not violence literally means that he's not a giver of blows. Not a giver of blows. He doesn't punch people <laughs> when he gets upset. But there, this is connected to the guy who is a drinker because people who drink, the result is often violence. So the idea here is he's not quick-tempered. It doesn't result to physical violence because you don't want people to deal with difficulty through violence. This person is cool-headed with gentleness. He doesn't fight. He doesn't resort to violence. He doesn't only speak about his physical violence but also his, his verbal violence. His, his tongue is not to be a lashing tongue which reaches out his strife. So the man who leads the church is not to deal with difficulty through violent, physical, or verbal means. And then sixthly, not quarrelsome. Verse 3 says there, not quarrelsome. See, there's nothing more difficult in a church than to have leaders who who quarrel about everything church leaders must be peacemakers they should pursue peace they should be gentle and patient and peacemaking people so quarrelsome there means that they do not strive and then seventhly he says that not a love of money not covetous, as some versions say that. It literally means that he's not a lover of silver. And really, the love of money is, is a big corruption in, in, in ministry. People use ministry as a way of getting money. And when they do that, they see everybody as, as a means of getting rich. But we are warned in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, godliness with contentment is, is great gain. We, we brought nothing into the world and we'll take nothing out of it. So if we have food and, and clothing, we we be content. But the person who pursues riches fall into temptation and snares, foolish, hurtful lusts that drown them in destruction and perdition. Why? Because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and some people have coveted after money they have erred from their faith they have pierced themselves with many sorrows and so the person desiring to get into pastoral ministry should guard himself very cautiously from the love of money it means that he doesn't have any earthbound desires he doesn't have a covetous spirit which clips their faith, which clips the wings of their love and power. He's not greedy. He's not stingy. He's not indulgent. He's not ambitious over the things of the world. Yeah, and, and that summarizes the moral character of the man who leads the church. Secondly, we're going to look at his domestic life. Domestic life and the first thing there it says the husband of one wife and so we see that his blamelessness must be first identified by his sexual purity in the in the 
in the original Greek it says a one woman man and the like and the lack of a definite article there shows that it's not a must that you be married for you to serve in the ministry so it it talks about his sexual purity it's not talking about his his marital status because if you say that no single person can can lead the church you see Paul is disqualified then because Paul calls himself an elder and the assumption here is that most men will get married most men will have families most men will have children and so it's not a penalty to be single it's not a penalty if god doesn't give you children you do not need those to be qualified for the work of ministry this is a man he says there this is a man who loves only one woman who desires only one woman who thinks of one woman whose heart is only for one woman and that woman is the wife the god the wife that god has has given him and so he does not violate his commitment to his wife in his mind in his heart and so the issue here is is the issue of the heart is the moral character of this man so that's the first thing a one woman man the husband of one wife as far as domestic uh, life is concerned secondly hospitable verse 2 supposed to be hospitable and and the word here carries the idea of love and affection towards strangers you see the pastorate is not a place where you ascend beyond the people and and you become untouchable it's a place where you become touchable and your home is a place where the lord uses it as he sees fit and so just as christ has received us gentiles as strangers to, to the covenant how can we not welcome strangers into our home after all if if anything we only manage everything that we have for christ he owns it all and and hospi- hospitality is 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 often a best avenue for evangelism and so he must be hospitable and then as far as this domestic life is concerned look at verse 5 he says for if someone does not know how to manage his own household how will he care for church for god's church so the family becomes the proving ground for leadership skills what this is saying is that anyone who leads the church has demonstrated to be a spiritually successful leader in family so they are to be respectful self control discipline children as says there and notice he says how shall he how will he care for for god's church because that's his responsibility he ought to take care of the church of christ and then I, I, I want you to see that you see when this fence is re- removed everyone is everyone will fall off to the edge and so all this must be guarded very very firmly and that's why we have to set the fence and then thirdly we talk about his pastoral life pastoral life and the first thing is at the end of verse 2 must be able to teach we saw that last week he must be able to teach it means that he's skilled in teaching and you see this is the difference that sets him apart from the deacons because deacons are not commanded to to be able to teach and so this is a mark skill that goes along with his unique moral spiritual qualification so this man is highly qualified and with it he's skilled in teaching let me ask what qualifies him to be an effective teacher on what basis can he have authority to stand before the people and teach anyone 
Anyone? What basis? What do you think is the reason why um, he's able to teach? Or, or what qualifies him to teach? He's able to teach effectively if he lives up to what he teaches. Because if he teaches and he doesn't live that life, he teaches with, with arrogance and he undermines the office of eldership, he undermines the scripture. And, and it's a picture, uh, Spurgeon describes a picture of a good preacher but, but a bad Christian. And he says that this man preached so well and lived so badly that when he was on the pulpit, everybody said that he ought never to come out of it again because he taught the things that are so right, things that are so believable, and people are saying he should not come out of that place because he was a bad Christian. And then when he was out of the pulpit, People declare that he ought never to enter the pulpit again because he was a bad Christian. So you're able to teach effectively if you're able to live what you teach. So this is a, a moral qualifications, being able to teach that is, that is linked to his function. He's a skilled teacher. So he has an exemplary life so, so, so the, these are what, what I can say that, that are conditions for a skilled teacher he has an exemplary life because whatever, whatever he teaches he, he affirms and he practices, he's an example and then he, he ought to have a gift of teaching he should have a doctrinal knowledge he ought to have humility holiness he ought to be diligent in his biblical study he ought to refute error and as a result, he has strong courage and consistent conviction. So the skilled teacher teaches with convictions. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 to 19. And then fourthly, it has to do with spiritual life. Spiritual life. That's the fourth thing. Um, look at verse 6 talks about his maturity in the faith he says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil moreover he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil so a recent convert there, convert there refers to in the Greek means to be planted, to, to be newly planted. And, and this refers to a new convert, newly baptized. And Paul is telling Timothy, don't put that man into spiritual oversight as a pastor. Why? He says the reason why. Lest he lifted up with pride. And the issue here is not whether he's qualified to teach or not. He could be eloquent, very gifted in teaching, but if he's a, a recent convert, Paul is saying he'll be puffed up with pride. And the issue here is, if you lift up a new convert in the church and you give him a position of godly, mature people, one of the sins we're seeing here that we'll battle with, he'll battle with pride. He'll see himself as having reached there. Yet he, he recently became a believer. So the tendency for him is to be proud, to feel elevated to that le level of leadership occupied by older, more mature people. Any, any question before I continue? I conclude this uh, part on the eldership.
And so we see that those entering into ministry, they have to be cautiously guarded and not given the responsibility of a pastor if they are young believers because you want to protect them from pride. You don't want them to be proud. And then he says, um, or he may become puffed up with conceit and says, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. What does that mean? To fall into the condemnation of the... It seems to be serious. It means that this person may fall into the judgment of God pronounced on the devil. We know that the devil does not pronounce judgment. It is God who pronounces judgment. And so this person may fall into the same sin, the sin of pride which condemned the devil. And so leadership must involve humility. And the church must protect itself from lifting up people too soon into the eldership. Because Christ says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And so the test of maturity, the standard of maturity, is the standard of your humility. And so, we see the last thing in verse 7, moreover he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So his testimony has to be certified by people who are not part of the church. He must have a good reputation in the community. Because if he doesn't have a good reputation in the community, how will people take heed to what he says? So he must have a good reputation to the community. What I'm saying here is that it doesn't mean that people will not oppose him, but it's an aspect in which people will oppose him, but people will respect him. People will respect his character. People will respect the way he leads his life. And so it's important that he has a good reputation in the community. Uh, secondly, we'll move to the topic of deacons. Unless anyone has a question or a comment or you're seeking any clarification before we move to deacons. So the deacons begins in verse 8 of that chapter, the qualifications. And the term deacon means a servant. Uh, it was initially used to mean a waiter, someone who serves a table, but uh, through usage it, it became broad and, and it meant any kind of service, any kind of wide range of service. And so from verse 8 we see the issue with deacons, I'll read verse 8. Deacons likewise, likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. So, first of all, I want you to understand that in no way are the deacons inferior in their qualifications than the pastors. The qualifications are almost the same. The standards are so high. It doesn't mean that, that if we have a person who is struggling in their sin, and we decide this person cannot be an elder, we can make him a deacon. No. The standard is, is very high. So the, the standard is no way lesser. First of all, there's a sense in which all of us serve as deacons. We are all in the service of the Lord. And that's the first thing we need to, to understand. It's not as if we have 
this special group of people called the deacons and the rest of us are, are just spectators no we are all in the ministry we all have been called to submit in obedience to service of Christ and so we serve God when we serve one another and we seek to meet the needs of others so we are all involved in some kind of spiritual service the Bible says that we, we have differing gifts, different gifts according to the grace given to us. But we'll notice that there are people in the church who are cut above everybody else because they're uniquely designed by God to serve. And so from a general level, everyone is, is to serve. But even in our midst, we'll notice that there are people who are uniquely gifted. They are gifted in a, in a special way. And in their work, we'll notice that they are energized by the Spirit of God. We can do what they, are, what they do, but they're able to do it in, in a very unique and special way. And so that's where the topic of deacons comes in. They are officially placed in an office of service and they become leaders and models of service for everybody else in the church. Now notice they are called deacons not because they are to do all the work but because they are to model the right kind of service for everybody else. So deacons are the ones leading in service. It doesn't mean that the rest of us as spectators, it means that we also work, but they lead in, in this work. So they are examples of spiritual virtue. So these are equally godly men, but, but their strength is not in the teaching area. You see, that's the difference. They're not command, they're, one of the qualifications is not for them to be able to teach. It doesn't mean that deacons cannot teach. There could be deacons who are gifted to teach. And there could be deacons who will end up to become elders later on in their life. <coughs> but their main responsibility is service. And their service is to relieve the elders from their material um, demands and responsibilities. And so, when he talks about deacons here, he doesn't talks about their responsibility. He talks again about their qualifications. There are no specific duties there. You, you may wonder then, what do deacons do? Deacons implement the task. Deacons help the elders. They assist them by relieving them of the more material affairs, so that. The elders might concentrate on their spiritual duties. So deacons implement, that is their primary task. Verse 9 says that they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Mystery refers obviously to a thing that was hidden that is now revealed. And it means that the content of their faith has to be based on the word of God. They must fully believe and affirm the scripture as the guiding principle of their faith and, and practice. So they must not only know the truth, but they must live the truth. And so the first thing I'd like us to see has to do with their personal character. Verse 8, the personal character, it says, Deacons likewise must be dignified. The word dignified there means to be serious. It means to be stately. It has the idea of being serious in mind as well as serious in character. 
And so this stateliness, this seriousness, commands respect from the rest of the brethren. So this person has a majestic quality of character that makes people stand in, in awe of them. And, and notice after the positive dignified, we have the negatives. It says, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. So it follows the positive there, and we see the negatives. To be double-tongued means that he doesn't say one thing to one person and say something else to another person for his personal gain. And the idea here is he must have integrity in speech. Because you notice that deacons are privy to very private matters in the church. And he knows private issues which must not come to light before other people. And if he is double-tongued, then he will reveal people's secrets. And so he says that there must they are not to be double-tongued. They should speak what they mean and, and not uh, change. They must have integrity whenever they speak. And then thirdly there, so dignity, they, they, they ought to be dignified. Secondly, double not to be double-tongued. And then thirdly, not addicted to much wine. Again, we've spoken of that. They are not to be intoxicated or to have anything that blurs their vision. This is a person who does not allow drink to influence his life. So he's a serious person who speaks with integrity and who is in control of his senses at all times. And then fourthly, we see there that he's, he's not greedy for dishonest gain. Not greedy for dishonest gain. Obviously, the, the responsibility of the deacons is to handle finances. And if, if, you, if you can remember back then, there were no banks, there, there was no auditing. And, and if a deacon was in need and was tempted to, be, uh, to, to, to embezzle the funds, it was easy for him to, to steal money. And, and they are commanded here that they are, they are not to be greedy for dishonest gain and so they should they should not be lovers of of money they should not be motivated by money they should be they should be free from the love of it and then secondly let's see their spiritual life their spiritual the spiritual life verse 9 talks about the they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, referring to their spiritual life. And as I've said, they must hold to the all of Scripture as the authoritative word of God. They must know it, they must believe it, they must affirm it. And so it says there, with, with a clear conscience. The stronger you know the, the stronger you know the Bible and you believe it, the stronger your conscience will be. The more you understand the Bible, the more you believe it, the more faith you have it. The more, the stronger your conscience will be. If you're weak in your conscience, it's because you're weak in your convictions. And so, this person must be committed in their truth. And so the conscience has no standard for him to accuse him because he believes in the truth. He lives in, according to the truth. And so the deacon is tested by personal character, spiritual life, and then thirdly, Christian service. Look at verse 10. Christian service. And then he says, verse 10, and let, and let them also be tested first then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Notice the phrase, 
also in verse 10. And it also speaks of elders. Before anyone is set apart for the work of eldership, they must also be tested. It says there, and let them also be tested. Referring also to the elders. So there should be an ongoing general assessment by the church to, to, to evaluate the service of this person. And so they are to be tested on their basis of their service to Christ. It's not a one-time test. It's not a written test. It's, not, it's an ongoing evaluation. So personal character, spiritual life, Christian service, fourthly, moral purity. End of verse 10. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Again, the service is different, the function is different by the qualification as far uh, with uh, this qualification um, is the same as the one for the elders. It means that there's no blot in their life. Without, they're without spot, they're without blemish. They, they have nothing to be accused of and to be disqualified. So moral purity. And then lastly, we see domestic life. Their domestic life. He says, verse 12, domestic life. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own deacons well. And so, let me close with a promise there. I think it's very clear for you there in verse 12. It talks about their domestic life. Let me, let me end with a promise there in verse 13. He says, for those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. What is it saying? A good standing there means an elevated platform. It means that when you serve well as a deacon in the service of Christ, in that official capacity in the church, it says you're put on a pedestal, you're put on a high regard. The spiritual respect from other people by how you live and by how you com uh, conduct yourself. So if you served in humility, if you served in submissiveness, you'll be lifted up. Just as James says, whoever humbles himself, the Lord will exalt him. And so God may lift him up, he may be elevated by men, because he serves well as a deacon. He's in good standing. People will respect you. People will honor you. People may not necessarily give you an award. But there is this spiritual respect in the eyes of the people. And you see, that is, that's a wonderful promise. And then he says, the second thing he says, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So, so this person, when he serves, the truths that he believes in are more and more affirmed because he sees more of the grace of God, the love of God in his service to the Lord. And what happens, there's boldness in his faith. There's more conviction in these truths. And so we see here those two promises given to them. And what is most importantly is, is God will reward them. Someday, God will tell them, well done, good and faithful deacon, good and faithful servant. Anything you like to ask or comment or, or you need any clarification before we pray?
Yeah, that's a good question. He's asking, where's the place of men being trained into ministry? Um, of going into seminaries and and uh, theological colleges to be trained. Anyone, anyone like to respond to that? Anyone else? What's the place of seminaries and colleges, theological sem uh, colleges? Do colleges qualify one to to be in ministry? Does it? No. We've seen that it's a call. He says. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So, so it's a call, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. But we must appreciate the role of seminaries in equipping these people and shaping their theological convictions and helping them to be disciplined. I, I think one of the importance of, of a theological college is that it helps one to be disciplined, uh, to know how to order his priorities, to be well balanced in life. Yeah, but you could also have a case where someone is is really gifted. Uh, probably he, he never went to, to to any seminary, but he's he's diligent in his studies. He's disciplined, and he's gifted and he's equipped for ministry. And the important thing is is the call. Does he feel a burning compulsion to serve the Lord? I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, someone may be qualified, but uh, if there, if there is no call, really, there is no conviction. If there is no call, if something happens in ministry, and it's very difficult for them, watatoroka, because they don't feel called. If if service becomes hard they'll just uh, run away and so the call must be very important yeah yes i think i think the ability to teach there mm. uh, it's important to first of all say that one can be a pastor without going to seminary i mean we have uh, multiple men uh, taken on the ministry without having gone to the seminary and so uh, and and of course the qualifications don't say that one must must go to seminary mm -hmm. but then the ability to teach there means that they they study the word of god they're able to l look at it mm -hmm. and they're able to uh, 
interpret it to God's people in a way that would be helpful for them. So what seminaries do what seminaries basically do is is that they the seminaries take the Bible, uh, they help the you know, person who is called to the ministry to be able to rightly handle it. Mm. But then one doesn't need to go to the seminary to be able to do that because the ability to teach is a qualification given by God along with other qualifications uh, there. And so we, we, we encourage people to go to seminary because when they do, their ability to teach is sharpened. Um, but then it's not a must for them to because there might not be a seminary, a seminary to go, it might be too expensive for them to do that. If they have the word of God, then the God who is calling them will surely help them to know how to teach. Yeah. Yeah. The God who calls them will qualify them indeed. Yeah. They are, haven't gone through the responsibilities of the elders, but I guess uh, most of you are familiar with it. They are there in the church constitution, so you can check it, check it out. Any more question or clarification before we pray? Can a woman be a deacon? Yes? Can a woman be a deacon? Can a woman be a deacon? I'll answer that with a question. Because... Tim, um, Paul commands us here that Paul says that he does not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. When a woman becomes a deacon, does she exercise authority over a man? Do you think they exercise authority over a man if they become deacons? Yes, India. Yeah, they exercise authority because um, if 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 they tell you to to sit there, utaka uh, apo like you 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 have no nothing else to say, India. They're exercising authority over you. If they tell you to stand up, to do this and this, they're exercising authority over you. And so we saw there last time the reason is given. Uh, chapter 2 verse 12 I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority of a man rather she is to remain quiet and the reason is given there for Adam was formed first then Eve so it's a creation order it's a creation order that is how God has designed it's not uh, any of us yeah Romans 16. Yes, the, the term servant there means deacon. And um, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancrea. And what we mean is that women can can serve in the church but not in an official capacity as a deacon they can serve other men they can serve other women and children but in an official capacity they exercise authority over other people and that's where we feel uh, we see from scripture that they cannot serve yeah so they can be servants in the church but not in an official capacity where they are set apart as deacons. Because when they become deacons, they exercise authority over, over other people. So, so, and that's not uh, uh, allowed. Yeah. Uh, allow me to pray. Uh, let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning.
Thank you for its great instructions, its great warnings. Help us to abide in it, Lord. We pray that this word will dwell richly in the hearts of your people so that they may be able to teach and admonish one another. Help, help your people, Lord, to, to grow and to be established in the most holy faith. Forgive us for our sins and cleanse us from every unrighteousness. We ask these things in Jesus' name.